I think what you're going to see is that habits and behaviors that have been calcifying for the last seven months while people have been forced into remote are going to persist. And the reason for that is on both sides of that equation, right? Workers want more flexibility. They want more life-work balance. They want more time with their kids, with their families. They don't want to waste, go back to wasting two hours a day commuting. I think in many ways, like, there's this remote working dilemma is going to happen, right? Like, you go back to an office full-time, your biggest competitor doesn't. Well, they get all those benefits, and you don't get any of those, and you are paying more money, and your talent pool is smaller. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Work Project. My name is Derek Franco, and it is my great pleasure to introduce you to this program dedicated to bringing together smart and thoughtful leaders and innovators experimenting with new and unique ways of working. From remote work and culture to research into the peak performance of human beings, we'll learn alongside these experts pushing the boundaries today. Today's guest is Chris Hurd. Chris is the founder and CEO of FirstBase, a platform designed to help the next generation of great companies go officeless by reimagining where and how work is done. As a huge proponent of remote work, Chris dives into how the future of work has been shaped by remote and how the increase in flexibility will provide everyone with a better life. We also learn more about First Space Remote Report, which was compiled from six months of interviews with over a thousand companies to discover key insights on what the future of remote work will look like. And finally, we learn how teams that continue to invest in asynchronous work environments will have a huge advantage in both attracting and keeping talent in a post-COVID world. And with that said, it's my great pleasure to welcome Chris Hurd. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Before we really kind of jump into the conversation, um, I'd love to kind of dive into a little bit of background, uh, you know, on yourself and, uh, you know, some of your projects that you've been working on. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the best place to start is I, I thought I was going to be a professional soccer player. Um, oh, really? Got a bad injury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a kind of bad injury before I realized I was never going to be good enough, which in retrospect is probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to focus on academics. <laughs> um, studied architecture, realized pretty early on I never wanted to be an architect. But I had this, I think, profound realization at that time that it was the best business degree in the world, which... I think most people would dispute, but the way I see it is architecture is about reinterpretation of historical precedent with the integration of the modern technology of the day. So exactly the same as business. You look at Uber as the reinvention of the taxi industry. You look at IBM, Microsoft as the reinvention of IBM's mainframe computer. You look at Spotify as the reinvention of um, Napster, peer-to-peer sharing. So I seen that as the skills it was giving me, graduated, lived in Aberdeen, which is the oil and gas capital of Europe, so naturally I fell into the oil and gas industry, um, and pretty quickly realized that if I stayed in that industry, I, I wouldn't have had a very long life, let's yeah. put it that way. <laughs> um, so I started doing a few things out with the 9 to 5. I wrote a blog that grew to about 40,000 um, oh, wow. followers. That led me to connect with early stage startups in the UK, so companies like Skyscanner and BrewDog led me to connect with early stage VCs in London. 
Um, and fast forward probably two years later, I'm looking at what my next opportunity is going to be, um, talking to people like Airbnb and Uber about management positions, talking to business schools in the States about their MBA programs, talking to VCs in London, talking to some of those startups I mentioned, but ultimately decided to turn down all those high paying opportunities and fund the fintech business. And yeah, that was, I guess, the beginning of the path. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. And so the fintech business that you guys were building out, what was kind of the concept around that? So that, that was predicated on asymmetric information. We plugged into your bank account, analyzed your recurring expenses, identified where you were paying more than you should be, and we could automatically switch you to a better deal. And we finally came to the realization that A, customer acquisition cost and fintech is insane, so we're never going to be profitable. Unfortunately, we'd been building this interesting remote product internally as a tool to take care of our own needs. Um, and the reason we did that was we realized we wanted to be a remote team. We realized how expensive it was to get that team set up, how time consuming it was, stuff never turned up, it got lost, it was difficult to collect it. And we basically just said, look, let's solve this problem before we go and hire a whole host of other people. And that was what we did. Like we, we, we had the pain point, we had the experience to solve that. In a prior life, I'd been putting that same equipment on oil and gas rigs in the most remote places on the planet. So it was easy for us to do. So we built first base in that business, Finally, we come to the realization that that fintech business wasn't going to be profitable. Pivoted in September last year, which in retrospect looks like it was pretty decent timing with respect to the rise, rise of remote. No, 100%, 100%. And I mean, even the tools that you guys are building are, are absolutely amazing. And, um, you know, would you mind if we kind of touch a, a little more on First Base as well? Um, you know, kind of just what exactly is the company's product offering to people? And, you know, how does it really help those that are wanting to build out uh, remote teams? Yeah, so the way we like to describe First Base is as a physical operating system for remote work. What that really means is we help you supply, finance, and manage all the physical equipment your remote team needs to be as safe, comfortable, and productive at home as they would be in an office. So everything from the hardware, whether that's laptops, desktop computers, monitors, things like keyboards, mice, other peripherals, through two things like desks and chairs. So really about creating that physical environment at home and then managing that entire process, the delivery, the maintenance, the repairs, the collections, the upgrades if the worker stays there for long enough. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. And yeah, those are the pieces that as people kind of got thrust into remote work for the first time, they realize like there's a lot to think about, especially when you're managing so many people going remote. And, uh, you know, this is something that I mentioned right before the uh, the conversation, but um, you know, I, I've actually been following you on Twitter for a long time. And, you know, a lot of the content that you're putting out is really around uh, remote work. And, you know, I'd love to kind of dive into to some of these pieces that you've been talking about, um, in particular, kind of what you mentioned with what First Base is doing, what the future of the office kind of looks like in your mind. Um, you know, right now we're we're in a weird time. Um, a lot of people kind of got their first taste of remote, but it wasn't in normal times. And so, you know, you have a lot of people that right now have a, a little bit of a sour taste on, oh, 100% remote. And some people actually, you know, they've had to deal with large families and, you know, they, they kind of want to get back to at least somewhat of an office. But, you know, my question would be, what do you kind of foresee the future of the office looking like when the world kind of comes back to a little bit of normalcy? Yeah, I, I think what you're going to see is that habits and behaviors that have been calcifying for the last seven months while people have been forced into remote are going to persist. 
And the reason for that is on both sides of that equation, right? Workers want more flexibility. They want more life-work balance. They want more time with their kids, with their families. They don't want to waste, go back to wasting two hours a day commuting. And then the other side of that equation is companies who prior to this were likely to be reluctant to um, approve remote working have now realized that A, we can trust our people to do great work. B, we've seen productivity, if not go through the roof, remain consistent. And C, talent. So rather than hiring the best person in a 30 mile radius, you get to hire the best person in the world. And then D is cost efficiency. Rather than paying 20 to $50,000 a month per worker, now we can provide a great remote work um, experience at home by giving them the right tools and equipment. And it's one tenth of the cost. So simultaneously, you become more cost efficient and talented, which I think in many ways, like there's this remote working dilemma is going to happen, right? Like you go back to an office full time, your biggest competitor doesn't. Well, they get all those benefits and you don't get any of those and you are paying more money and your talent pool smaller, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, when we do return to normal and things are opened up, there's there's flexible options too. I mean, you know, co-working spaces are popping up everywhere. It just kind of seems like this model of the standard, uh, kind of the, the standard model that we were working on with there being a single corporate office that people would go into and commute to just seems like that will die off as we kind of return to normal. Yeah, I think you look at these bespoke, egotistical monuments to a company's prior success as what offices used to be, right? And I think the reality now is every company on the planet is going to use this as an opportunity to cut their office footprint by 40 to 60%. At worst, they're going to let people work from home two to four days a week come into the office one to two days a week. And I would say, and, and I would caveat this with clearly the companies talking talking to me in first base are predisposed to being remote. So there's obviously a bias in the data that we've got, but 60% of companies are saying we're going to be that type of hybrid. And then 30 to 40% are saying, actually, we're going to get rid of the office entirely. And that's a fairly large sample size. Like I totally appreciate it's, it's biased towards that, but we've got, 7,000 companies on our wait list, 11 million aggregate employees. So if you're talking of the 255 million desk jobs globally, we've talked to a fairly decent array across that. Hmm. No, and I'd love to kind of dive into that. So FirstBase did uh, a remote report for context and you interviewed, it was over a thousand companies in six months, correct? Yeah, it was, it was somewhere around 1,100. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's absolutely amazing. And, you know, I guess a question that I would have is, were, any, were there any surprising factors that you found um, as you were going through the reporting data? I think what was most surprising was the universal reality that we were hearing. I think our anticipation was that we would hear fundamentally different things from the largest legacy incumbents on the planets, the banks, the credit ratings agencies, the accountancy firms, compared to what we were hearing from Series A plus funded startups. But I think actually what was most surprising was we're kind of hearing the same thing. Like mm-hmm. the reason bank A is going remote is the same reason that startups going remote. So I think that for me personally was what took me, as I say, most by surprise. No, no, 100%. And, you know, especially on our side too, you know, when it came to us, you know, as I mentioned before uh, the conversation, we built our entire team remote from day one. One of the first engineering hires we made was actually in Brazil, He's one of the best engineers I've ever worked with. And, you know, I've been in the engineering side for, you know, 13, 14 years plus now. And it, it's just amazing how, you know, you're able to expand that talent pool. And, you know, I'd actually kind of like to to pull at this thread and 
you know, I guess, what are your thoughts as talent everywhere is kind of unlocked? You're going to see a lot of different shifts in the way that companies go and recruit. You know, just as you said before, a lot of it was they used to give a lot more precedence or more weight to people that were in a, you know, 30, 50 mile radius. Now that they've unlocked it kind of everywhere, it seems to me that there may be kind of like a little more, not only competition for hiring, because now you have the ability to hire the best. How do companies kind of compete with this now if they're all remote um, and they're all going after kind of the same talent pool? Yeah. So I, I think there's two parts to this. I think number one, the only companies that can really afford to go back to an office full time are monopolies, right? And I'm not going to name them, but everyone knows exactly who I'm talking yep. about. <laughs> None of them are going back to an office full time. Almost every single one of them, of them has announced to a company, we are going to be more remote after this. Yep. So that's point number one. The second part that follows from that then is how do you as a startup compete, not just in San Francisco against these types of companies, but globally? Now, you're in the Midwest. Are you going to work for the local accountancy firm or are you going to work for mega corporation in Seattle who's now hiring remotely? Same issue happens in Brazil. So I think the question like that people have is, okay, well, what happens when people start using this as an opportunity to outsource jobs? Yeah. Actually, the opposite is happening, right? It's not we're looking to outsource this to save money. We're looking to find the most talented people. And the most talented people get paid high salaries. Yep. So I think there's like a fundamental disconnect. Look, there undoubtedly will be like casualties in terms of the amount people are getting paid. Like you're hearing this conversation just now. Should you get paid a San Francisco salary or what's perceived to be a San Francisco salary if you're living in Ohio? Actually, I think there'll be a rebalancing here. If you're the most talented engineer in the world and you decide you want to work in Ohio and Microsoft says, well, we're going to cut your salary by 20%, you just say, cool, I'm going to go and work for Facebook who are going to give me that 20%. That's, that's like somewhat irrational about that. And then the other part to that is, okay, well, actually, like there's a question in my head, have these big cities, companies in big cities just been subsidizing cost of living? Yeah. That's also true, right? Like the... The cost of living in San Francisco versus wherever else, exponentially lower. So there's, there's, I think we're going to live through a lot of this. There's going to be peaks and troughs. There's going to be sort of, it's going to go high and then it's going to go low. But actually, I think fundamentally, most places are going to be better off in terms of the salaries they're getting paid. No, 100%. And, you know, one thing that it really kind of touches on as well is the ability for someone to kind of work wherever they want. And it spreads the wealth out kind of across globally versus just concentrated in particular cities. Um, and, you know, that's going to have some some interesting effects for sure. But I, when I look at it, I see that more in a positive light because a lot of people are predicting, oh, the death of, of cities and this and that. I mean, realistically, cities are always going to be a drawer for some people, but yeah. now it's just less of a really a hassle if you're living in these cities. Because as you mentioned before, you're not commuting an hour and a half every single day. Like you can still enjoy the the amenities of the city if you want to be there, or you could move, you know, an hour or two outside of it, or, you know, even to another state. And as long as you're connected to good Wi-Fi, you should be fine. So yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting kind of evolution over the next couple of years for sure. You know, one thing that I'd love to kind of dive in, kind of taking a step back to the report is, were there any things that people were negative about when it came to remote work? And, you know, this this could be a little biased right now with the times that we're working in because this this isn't working remote normally. Uh, you know, this is working remote in a pandemic. 
Um, were there any kind of negatives that people were touching on when you guys were doing the reporting? Yeah, and, and I, I think what's been most interesting. So I spoke to a reporter yesterday and their question was, gee, COVID is the best thing that's ever happened to remote work. And I said, or the worst. And the reason I said that is exactly what you say. It's this is not remote working as normal. This is, and these are the issues we're hearing. This is remote working while you can't leave the house. This yeah. is remote working while we're homeschooling. This is remote working while I can't see my family or fly or do any of these things or go to the gym. Yeah. So I think what we're hearing is a lot of people, and, 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 and there may be a, a sort of lashback against this, where people's experience of remote work has been negative. And actually, a lot of them never work, want to work remotely. Now, I think most people have a wider spectrum view of this and they say, okay, well, the benefit is I no longer have to commute. My kids will eventually go back to school. I'll eventually be able to fly and have a holiday. I'll eventually be able to go to restaurants and coffee shops, et cetera, et cetera. So I think most people we spoke to appreciated that. Some people obviously never. And they said, well, remote work doesn't work for me. And our response was, okay, that's, that's interesting. But like, have you thought about it in this perspective? And I think some people, they just can't see past the challenges that we're facing as a global pandemic, right? Yeah. And I think that's the, the biggest piece right now is, you know, everybody kind of just wants to blame remote work for a lot of the, the problems that they're having. But it's just, as you said before, it's remote work while not being able to leave the house um, under a yeah. very different set of situation there. Um, and, you know, I actually kind of want to touch on this of really remote in a normal time. There are ways to really kind of do it right. Um, and, you know, people haven't had a chance to experience yet if this is their first kind, kind of working remote. And, you know, it could just be something as simple as doing an onsite with your team in, you know, really unique locations. Um, or, you know, just as you mentioned before, the, the flexibility factor for, you know, whether it's picking up your kids from school, dropping them off, going to the gym in the middle of the day. As we kind of return to normal, do you foresee people really kind of when they discover this doubling down on remote, if they went back to like, let's just say kind of a flexible space where they're at the office two days a week or go to the remote. Yeah. And I think anecdotally, we've seen this happen already. So you've seen a lot of companies have a bespoke HQ, they cut it, they go a co-working model. And what they don't tell you is the next time you speak to a company like that, ask them the occupancy rates of the co-working spaces, ask them how many other people go there on Mondays and Fridays. And the occupancy rates are abysmal. So the reality is people, people realize, or people are, are saying today, look, I, I would like hybrid working going forward. 90% of Google's workforce said they would not like to go back to full-time office working, right? So that is the, like almost unequivocally, the best office experience on the planet. Chefs, um, restaurants, masseuses, ping pong tables, beer fridge, like whatever those things, the best office experience in the planet. And only 10% of their people want to go back yep. full time. <laughs> now that speaks for itself, right? But the other part is like, yeah, the other, the other part is that pe people think that they want hybrid and then when they go hybrid, they realize that it dilutes the benefits that they actually really want. And that's the things that you talk about is picking your kids up. It's no commute. Like, Hybrid sounds great in principle, but actually I think it ends up being the worst of both worlds. No, 100%. And even just from a, a productivity standpoint, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm on the engineering side. For me, when I got my first taste of remote, this was probably 20, 2016 when we were building a team that was remote. That was probably the biggest factor that I noticed was just the fact that how much I got 
done because I wasn't pulled into a bunch of different random conversations or, you know, I wasn't just getting tapped on the shoulder with another product idea. Um, and I think that's something that people really, it kind of surprised people at first was the, the productivity that they were able to get. But this also kind of leads to a little bit of something that if this is people's first time in remote that they've been managing, which is overwork and kind of burnout. And it's, it's very, it's very easy to do when you don't have that separation of, you know, walking to the office. Um, I guess, have you dealt with this in the past yourself uh, when you first started working remote? And I guess, what are some of the things that you and your team do to kind of manage this to make sure that they don't burn out working in this kind of always asynchronous environment? Yeah. In, in a pre sort of remote world, I think working synchronously has those purposeful divides, right? Like, you know, your day starts here, lunch is here, the end of the day is here, like super easy. Working asynchronously changes that, like unquestionably. That's, I think, the superpower that people don't see who have never worked remotely. Yeah. Like being able to have the isolation you need to do deep focused work without distraction is the superpower of remote work. Okay. And there's too many companies that are trying to replicate what they know in the office and it's going to destroy the benefits that they see. And I think what we've tried to do is just, just be mindful of people if they're in different time zones, not sending them messages on Slack at stupid hours, sending emails. Like we, we've got a pretty good or pretty, pretty decent email culture. So if we're going to do that, we can delay send them. I think it's just being mindful of, of people. And to your earlier point, I think how we work remotely is let people dictate when they're most productive, right? Like just stipulating someone needs to work nine to five is so ridiculously irrational, <laughs> driven by the industrial revolution that literally factory line working is where the nine to five came from or the eight to late, whatever that was. For knowledge workers, it just doesn't work. Like I might want to work, wake up at six in the morning, do a couple hours work, then go for a run, then do whatever I want to do, come back and work again at night. You might have a completely different thing. You might want to sleep till 11 in the afternoon, work for six hours, have a nap, go out for dinner, and then do whatever you want to do. So I think it's really about just appreciating what people need and then trusting that they're going to get their work done. And I think that's been pretty successful for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, companies that are able to build this, this culture of trust are the ones that are really succeeding more and more, um, even just before this time. But we're seeing it more that if you have that in your foundation for your company culture, I mean, your, your employees just succeed and fly at that point. Um, and this is actually a thread that I'd love to kind of pull on as well, which is, you know, the, the cultural aspect. And, you know, I guess I'll, I'll speak about this in, in normal times um, because it is, it is much harder to do when, you know, everybody's kind of stuck in their house. But how do you guys manage and kind of build a culture in a completely remote team? And I guess what are some of the things that you were doing, um, you know, pre-lockdown uh, to kind of help bring the team together and build that sense of camaraderie that you would have normally gotten, you know, on a day-to-day basis in the office? Yeah, I, I would I would push back against the the office culture. I, I think office culture is a myth. People use it as an excuse, and it's it's this, it's that. Largely, what office culture is is homogenous, right? The office is great. Like if you're a leader inside a company, the office is great. For everyone else, horrific. So it leads to a lack of diversity. It leads to the loudest person in the room being successful. And I think from our perspective, we just always saw remote work as an opportunity to cultivate a culture of cohesion um, and diversity and different perspectives and different feelings and 
we we can't we can't only attract this type of person. Now we can attract people that are single parents or they're looking after a family member who's ill or they can't work in the UK or the US because of visa issues. And now we can literally say, we have nothing that stops us hiring these people. And I think as a result, there are definitely things that you have to be more purposeful about, right? The difference with remote is like, you definitely see your teammates less, right? whether it's a, on a weekly basis or a monthly basis or a quarterly basis, whatever those type team offsites are. But when you do see them, you go below that superficial level. So I'm going to say, oh, how's your, how's your partner? How's your dog? How, how's that hobby that you've been working on? Like all those other things. So it goes below just being like the skin deep thing. I think I'm closer now to my teammates working remotely than I ever was to anyone working in an office. No, 100%. And I, I 100% agree because I even think back to, you know, the company that I mentioned in 2016 when we was were first building that remote team. Two of those people that I worked with actually ended becoming two of my groomsmen because of exactly yeah. that. I mean, like, you know, we would, I mean, I he lived at the time, one of them lived in Atlanta, one of them was in New York, I was in LA, but it was all the different offsites that we had together. Um, but yeah, you know, you build more of a relationship and a better foundation, just as you mentioned before, um, when you are actually interacting with people in that way versus just, you know, kind of being forced to be in the same spot together, you know? Yeah. And I, I, like my fundamental question is, and, and people sort of bristle at this and I, I don't say it to be provocative, right? Uh, I just do not think your social contact being that like your most frequent social contact being decided by your, your employer's HR team is a good thing where the deepest common bond that you have is the continued economic success of said employer, where when that changes, the relationship ends. And if it's a superficial relationship that's built on these conversations that are ongoing but never go below a surface level Mm -hmm. versus the ones that you're talking about, which are meaningful interactions built around shared experiences, that just doesn't happen in an office. No, 100%, 100%. And it's it's the relationships you're actually choosing at that point versus kind of being forced into. Yeah. Um, and, you know, going back to kind of the, the flexibility that we were talking about before, you don't have to worry about the the visa problem anymore of, you know, can we get this person in? It's, you know, if this person just happens to be over in the UK or this person just happens to be over in Spain, like, cool, just hire them, just bring them on board. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so right now, you know, you mentioned before that you're in, in Scotland right now. And so, you know, I guess, a question I should ask first is where is most of your team based at? Yeah, our, our team is spread across Texas, New York, London, Glasgow, um, Aberdeen, and Belgium. So there is, I guess, an eight hour spread across those. And yeah, I think the way we manage it is we just work asynchronously. There's no real secret sauce to it. I think we trust our teammates to be professionals and deliver what they um, need to get through. And I think it potentially changes the equation from how many hours are you going to spend sat in that seat versus how much work have you actually produced? Like that's way more important to us. Like I I could pay someone to sit in a seat for 40 hours or I could pay for a specific outcome. And that's what I'm more focused on. Which outcomes do we need? If our teammates are delivering on that, it's, fucking awesome. Like we don't care about anything else. And yeah, I think look, there's times where you do need to be synchronous, right? There are times where you do need to have conversations, video calls, audio calls. And I think that's just about being respectful and mindful for people that are in different times. So making sure you're not doing it at seven in the morning and 11 at night. Um, But I think people are fairly flexible when they want to produce and, and obviously participate. So 
Uh, I think it's just one of them that you need to be cognizant of. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, kind of going on that point too. I mean, one thing that we saw for sure that, and I think people are kind of being forced into it, but when you're working in multiple time zones, it kind of takes away your ability to just throw a quick meeting on like, Oh, can we meet about this real quick? And it makes you be more deliberate in what you're asking of everybody. Um, And we've, we've even seen this too of, you know, improving people's writing skills um, you know, whether it's, you know, in, in the tickets that they're writing or the product specs that they're writing, they can't just write some crappy thing up and then give it to them and then know that we're going to talk about it in the meeting tomorrow. You know, if, if my engineers are five hours ahead of me, I've got to know exactly what they need right then and there. And I'm going to put that thought into it. And if it's not completely flushed out, I'm going to be bouncing it back and forth with everybody. And I think that's one thing that people haven't realized yet, because, you know, especially in, in the newer in the newer areas that are trying remote out they're still roughly in the same time zone. Um, But I think people will really start to see this kind of superpower even more and more um, as people really spread out across the globe. Yeah. And I think like part of it is some people were happy with the status quo, which is we're going to be busy without being productive. Yes. (laughs) Like some people like the instantaneous gratification of availability you alluded to earlier. I can go over to you. I can tap you on the shoulder and I say, I need help with, with problem X. And you're going to say, it's that like, yeah. and, and for me, it's great. Like I, my, my, my problem solved, I can go back to work now for you. I've just knocked you out of flow. Mm-hmm. It's going to take you 30 to 45 minutes to get back into that. If you ever do. So we we've like almost evolved in a situation where offices, which were originally designed to literally be the best place to do deep focus work on the planet have become these open plan distraction factory adult kids clubs where it's literally impossible to do deep focus work, which is I think why certain jobs are like absolutely crushing it right now because they don't have that constant disruption and distraction. No, 100%. And, you know, not only that, but it gives people, as you mentioned earlier, the ability to kind of find where their best focus space is. Um, and this has kind of led to a lot. I mean, there was a already kind of a growing community of uh, you know, you could say like remote travelers, uh, remote workers, or, you know, even these uh, digital nomads. And I think you'll see more and more of a boom of of that in in a particular way. Um, and, you know, kind of from from our side, you know, my uh, my wife is actually a travel nurse. Uh, so she does, you know, nursing contracts from city to city. And I mean, really for the next that we're already planning for the next year, year and a half of just kind of really bouncing around from city to city. And just, you know, I mean, I can work from anywhere. I can manage my team from anywhere. Yeah. And I, I think you'll see that more and more. And, you know, I guess in particular, you know, I can see that you've also taken it uh, to, you know, be with your family during this time uh, in Scotland. But were you taking advantage of kind of this ability before the lockdown as well? And what did that really look like for you um, to really kind of get in that focus state when you were going from place to place? Yeah, I think very similar situation to you. I think it's super easy for me to pick my laptop up, go and work in Portugal for a week or if I'm overseeing my um, partner's family in South Carolina, being able to go there for a week, being able to take vacations where if the kids are off on school holidays, then I can take meetings in the UK super early in the morning and then I can plan the family the rest of the day. And yeah, I think this is, this is a key point. I think just understanding the ability to increase your quality of life, whether that's via travel or time with family or more time to do hobbies that nobody ever gets to do when they're commuting for two hours a day. Um, just being able to integrate those things into your life is, I think, the, the key thing. And what I think what I would call is a lot of people talk about this as being the future of work, right? What we're really talking about is the future of living. Yeah. 
No, 100%. 100%. It really unlocks the ability for people to live the life that they want. And it's not just locked into, oh, Monday to Friday, I've got to be working. And, you know, Saturday, Sunday, I get to kind of enjoy life a little bit. Um, and I, you know, not only that, but you can actually see it from just uh, really, <laughs> I, I kind of want to touch on the story that you were talking about right before, which is the uh, the fundraising round that you guys did. I mean, if anybody needs, you know, physical, you know, monetary proof that people are loving and wanting to go remote. I mean, just the fundraising round that you guys did, I mean, would you mind kind of telling that story as well? Because, I mean, I think it just shows people want to invest in tools that will help people with remote work. Yeah, so for, for us, I think this has clearly been a trend that's accelerated by 15 years or so, as in remote working in general. And we went through a process of pivoting to this in September, building out the product, taking a wait list at the same time. And that wait list grew pretty, what we thought was fairly quickly from zero <laughs> to 600 companies in, in March 1st. And then March 1st to today has went from 600 companies to 7,000 companies. Oh my God. And that's, yeah, it's just been a, a wild ride. And I think it's like you start to grow so quickly that prior growth that you thought was explosive now looks flat, which is kind of cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of fundraising, so we, we went out and decided we were going to raise some capital to really take advantage of the unique confluence of circumstance that we've seen. Um, most of our round was taken up by insiders. So our prior investors who loved what we were doing, wanted to participate in, and really lead on that round. And we went out and spoke to a few other people where we thought there was good strategic alignment. And yeah, that, that round came together pretty quickly. We had term sheets from a few different sources and, Basically, the, the, the fund ended up leading. We, we got to know really well over a short period of time, closed it pretty quickly. We're able to get some, um, I guess, some of the most prominent angels on the planet involved as well. So really from day zero to day 10, we were able to accelerate through that. And yeah, I think just incredibly fortunate for that. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. And you know, I'm just curious. Uh, I love asking this, especially with people that have been building remote teams for a while. What is your, I guess I'd almost call it your your infrastructure stack look like? I guess the, the tools that you're using to kind of communicate remotely or manage the team remotely, um, what are you guys kind of using internally? Yeah, I mean, we definitely eat our own dog food with, with first base. So physical setup ourselves. Um, in terms of documentation, we use a combination of G Suite and Notion. Um, in terms of email, we use Gmail. Um, Slack, we use for instant messaging. Video, we use a combination of Zoom and Hangouts depending on what our client is. Um, asynchronous communication, we use a combination of Cloud App and Loom. Almost verbatim what we're using as well. Um, I think the only, the, yeah, the, the only difference on that one is for secure communications, we'll use Signal. Um, but yeah, Slack yeah. is our, our main source of kind of going back and forth between everything. <laughs> yeah, we, we've tried out a couple of different things and I think... There's, there's something about Slack that you find hard to replicate. So we used Twist for a while, which was like, I, I love Twist. I think it's incredible. And I think Slack really needs to think about doing something in that sense where you've got channels and then you've got threads that are organized and then you've got the, obviously the, the channel inside that. Yeah, I think Slack Slack's just designed well and people like using it, which is a far deeper moat than people realize. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it, this is one of the companies that I just look at and I'm like, they're still at the beginning of what they're doing right now. And you're right, it's just something that just feels very natural. Yeah, I think you're totally right. 
I think we look at that as a horizontal play and there's so many vertical, like the same way as Zoom is, right? Zoom re- releases apps last week, like horizontal play and then they can just integrate vertically as often and frequently as they need to. No, 100%, 100%. Um, and if people wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, First Base and you know the work that you guys are doing, uh, you know where could they go? Um, so for, for First Base, firstbasehq.com, um, at First Base HQ on Twitter, um, or me personally, at Chris underscore Heard. Perfect, perfect. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. This has been an incredibly insightful conversation. And uh, hopefully when things open back up, we can we can meet up in person, especially as we're bouncing around the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Appreciate your time, Derek. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Project. Now, as with all of our work, this interview is part of our ongoing research, and I'd love to get your thoughts and feedback on the discussion. To weigh in, visit our website at fowproject.com or reach out on Instagram at the FOW Project. We'll be sure to share the feedback on our social channels, and it could be featured in an upcoming episode. And with that said, thank you for listening.